Turkey, 1995. A site was discovered that made archaeologists reevaluate their theories about the Neolithic Revolution. But could he still be wrong? In Britain, France, there are fields of standing stones. Could there be a connection to Greece or even further away? A Latvian man builds himself a large castle. Some speculate that he learned how by unlocking knowledge that was handed to the ancient Egyptians. Could his trail lead us out of this world? Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host Frederick and this is episode 16 and we will look into the explanations for the unexplained structures around the world. With us on this trip we have no other than Dr. David S. Anderson who usually can be found penning articles for Forbes Science, Washington Post, just to name a few, and who is an expert on the ancient Mayans. But at night and even sometimes during the day, he also dives into the more fringe areas of archaeologists. He will soon get a chance to introduce himself in just a moment, but before that, remember that you can find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find our contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Well, enough of me jammering. Let's see what structures we can be tearing down today. And I want to welcome Dr. David S. Anderson to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. For any listener who might not be familiar with who you are, do you mind telling them a bit about your background and experience? Absolutely. So I I received my PhD in anthropology from Tulane University, uh, primarily at the time then with a focus on studying the ancient Maya. Uh, in particular, I was uh, very interested, still am very interested in the socio-political development of the Maya. So a lot of my field work in Mexico has involved studying the, the very earliest phases of Maya development before we get to the big pyramids and hieroglyphs that most people are familiar with. Uh, mm. I, I did my dissertation at a small site called Stobo, uh, which dates back to about 500 BC and would have been sort of a, you know, a chiefly capital of sorts at the time. And it's it's great because like it's squishy and weird. It's very obviously Maya, but it's not. We don't have this in, entrenched bureaucratic state yet. Uh, but we have lots of ball courts mm. and, and other fun things. And so that yeah, that has been my traditional field work. But uh, particularly um, since 2012, actually, so I guess a good solid 10 years now, I've been uh, more and more involved in publicly responding to, engaging with, and discussing pseudoarchaeology. Uh, these things like you're talking about with ancient aliens, but it goes way more broadly to that, uh, to all kinds of misrepresentations or misinterpretations of the ancient world. And I try to play with that definition a lot of like, what is pseudo-archaeology? Because it's really easy for people to sort of fire back and say like, oh, you just don't like that stuff, or you don't agree with that stuff. Uh, it's, it's it's not a pejorative term. I'm not trying to use it as a smackdown and say, like, it's, I'm just going to dismiss this mm. with this one label and walk away. I, I read this stuff. I watch this stuff. I've gone to some pretty interesting com- conventions about this stuff. It's um, pseudo-archaeology uses fundamentally different methods, methodologies, and concepts uh, than archaeology does. And, oh, Nelly, we saw some of that on display in this particular <laughs> episode we're talking about today. And as you mentioned, you have been... A bit in the pseudo archaeology. Do you have a favorite pet theory? Ooh, yeah. Oh, I do. Actually, I totally do. I one of my absolute favorites, and I've gotten to see some of these firsthand, are the Acambaro figurines from West Mexico. 
Uh, these are some little clay figurines. And if mm-hmm. you Google it, you, you get a bunch of stuff. And I'm a little iffy when you Google it about how many of them are accurate, uh, actual photos. But the, like the short story is like these are little uh, clay figurines that were made in the 1940s uh, to be sold to a German collector. Uh, and they claimed they were real and they showed humans and dinosaurs like living side by side. Uh, and then a couple of them actually have the humans riding the dinosaurs. Uh, and it's like, it's one of the most obvious hoaxes you can possibly imagine. Uh, and they've, there's been testing of these things. Like we, we a hundred percent know it's a hoax and yet they still crop up occasionally. The like young earth creationists really like them because it suggests humans and dinosaurs saw one another. Uh, it still shows up in some of the pseudo-archaeological circles as well. Uh, I got to, I've seen the University of Pennsylvania Museum has some of their collection. I got to see those there. But um, the first time I ever got to see one was very randomly. Uh, I was staying at a bed and breakfast uh, in Virginia where I live uh, on my anniversary of all things. Yeah. And as I was like walking out the door, the woman who uh, owned the house said, wait, you work in Mexico? I want to show you this figurine. And she trotted out this, this horrendously ugly figurine. And she's like, I, my husband thinks it's from Mexico. He said they, they bought it. And it's just like, this is. It was one of those moments where I'm like, that's an, I knew exactly what it was because they are very unusual in how they're made and their shape, and their style, and they're very poorly fired. Mm. I'm like, I was so excited. Like, I know this, this is a Combro figurine. Like, and, and I tried to explain it to her. And she's like, I have a fake dinosaur figurine from Mexico. I'm like, yes. And she's like, why are you excited? I'm like, I know. <laughs> I think I've heard them um, in passing in Young Earth Craterness, but uh, I'm not that familiar oh, with they, them. But uh, they made the circles. And there's a really glorious uh, Fate magazine was a really big pusher of the paranormal and UFOs and whatnot in the United States uh, in the 40s, hmm. 50s, and 60s. And uh, there's a glorious cover illustration on Fate magazine of people riding dinosaurs that is based on these figurines. <laughs> so how about we start to dig into the ancient aliens claim? Do you mind telling the audience which episode we watched? Yes, so we're watching uh, episode eight from season two. Uh, at least on uh, my end, it was called Unexplained Structure. I think they meant structures, but uh, you know they took us around the world and they did a classic, classic pseudo-archaeological thing where they said, who cares about timeline? Who cares about chronology? And so they started presenting us Places like Gobekli Tepe, uh, which is in Turkey, Saksamaman in Peru. Uh, they took us mm. uh, to the Karnak Stones in France and to Karahung in Armenia uh, and to Coral Castle in Florida, which was actually built in the 1920s <laughs> by a guy. And this is like my favorite part of the episode. They're like, how could he have made it? I'm like, you're showing us photos of him making it in the show. Uh, but how could he have possibly yeah, made it? And this is... It's classic where, and this is to me what the great thing of the, the conspiracy angle of, of ancient aliens. If they're right in this show, mm. this means there is consistent, ongoing alien contact around the world from 12,000 years ago to 1923. Uh, and and. They apparently are the only ones who have noticed, uh, and all the, acad- the academy has missed this global 12,000-year conspiracy. But you're not familiar with, uh, or you don't know how much money the archaeologists make on their sci- science? Oh, I am rolling. <laughs> I, Do you know how much money and prestige they <laughs> would lose if they accepted this? <laughs> it is classic. You know, I actually had a great example of this. Um, where uh, I, back, uh, I had just finished my PhD, but I had not gotten a job because lo and behold, jobs in, in archaeology and the academy are really hard to come by. Uh, and they don't pay well, even when you do yeah, come I by. Know. And I was working in a bookstore and I agreed to give, uh, I was giving some 2012 lectures about Maya 2012 and the calendar and whatnot. And this guy came up to me afterwards mm. and wanted to talk to me. And uh, he had found these objects uh, in his sort of backyard, so to speak. Uh, and he believed that they showed connections between where we were, uh, West Virginia, where I was at the time, and Egypt and the Maya and all these things. And he argued that uh, the, you know, the West Virginia was the crossroads of the ancient world, was his argument, basically. Uh, and, you know, I, I 
he's I like send me your website. I'd love to see it. And he sent me his, his website and I wrote him a long email where I'm like, I don't think you're right. And here's why. And here's what, and I, and I was like, you know, here's what you would need to prove this to someone like me. Uh, and I, I, from mm. my opinion, I tried to be very polite and respectful and, and engage uh, with this conversation. And when yeah. I sent that email, I got a blister of, uh, of an email back with lots of uh, all <laughs> caps uh, and lots of swear words. But it particularly is like your whole profession's a joke and you're in it for the money. And I just I just stared at that email like I'm working at a bookstore for minimum wage. Like literally, I'm like I, I am like barely getting by right now. But apparently I working at a bookstore for minimum wage can control uh, a global conspiracy. Yeah, and if we work at this bookstore uh, store, we basically put everything on the line to defend <laughs> yeah. theories. But I know that uh, Graham Hancock that shows up in this episode quite a lot usually loves these types of argumentation. He uses it in the show even. I think it's back in season one that he talks about all those scientists in their big ivory towers mm-hmm. and piles and money and just you wait, we will prove them yeah, wrong. Meanwhile, soon. he has you know, almost every book he has published has ended up on the New York Times bestseller. Uh, you know, before COVID, he was giving lectures where it was like three thousand dollars a ticket. I think it was. I, I that I'm. It was ridiculous. I will have to double check exactly how much money mm. it was per ticket, but it was uh, a huge amount of dollars to go and just see him speak. Like, but no, he's like we're the ones that like are just getting rich off of this. Yeah. Yeah. Could it be therefore he's not on the ancient aliens uh, live tour? He wants more than I would love to get in his head about this because so so you know the first topic in the show was Gobekli Tepe and they interviewed Graham Hancock a lot yeah. for this site and it, for, for those who don't know Gobekli Tepe is an incredible uh, site uh, built in Turkey about 12,000 years ago it's this, uh, has these amazing circular subterranean temple structures all built by hunter-gatherers mm. uh, which is one of the most extraordinary things about the site and it's really challenged us to make sure we Think carefully about how cultures develop and what you know what comes first. Uh, do we get farming first, or do we you know have before we get things like temples and religions and complex culture uh, governments and whatnot? Um, incredible site, really worth talking about. In fact, I, I love it when people uh, say like the archaeologists won't talk about Quebecli Tepe, and like, well, one, they're the ones who dug it and published it. Two, the textbook I used in my <laughs> class, for my archaeology class, Quebecli Tepe is literally on the cover of it. Uh, and I, I use a National yeah. Geographic article about Quebecli Tepe in my 101 class. Like, you know, we, we talk about it all the time. Uh, but I, I was saying I'd love to get in Hancock's head about this and know what he thinks because um, Hancock and Robert Schock is also in this episode, uh, particularly in the Quebecli Tepe mm. section. Uh, they are not ancient alien guys. Uh, uh, so... No, they are more the ancient civilization yeah. type of people. And they, as I understand it, Hancock can be quite upset if you mix him in with the mm-hmm. ancient aliens. Yeah, because he, he's got, he, he did, Hancock did publish a book, uh, The Mar- Mars Mystery, The Martian Mystery, uh, something like this, where he alleged that there were Egyptian style monuments on Mars. And so he did dip his toes in the ancient alien bucket. Uh, but then he, he kind of ran away from it pretty fast after that. And yeah, so in a very real way, like uh, Hancock and Shock are being misrepresented in this uh, in this episode as well. So like you literally have like they're talking about an ancient lost civilization, and it's pretty clear to me watching them that that's what they think they're talking about. But if you don't know their ideas and haven't read mm. their books, like it sound they make it sound like they're supporting this as an alien structure in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, in a sense. But um, how about we talk a little bit about about this uh, gobbly tepe that uh, we archaeologists refuse to acknowledge. So it was discovered in 1994, uh-huh. as I've understood it. This is not my area of expertise, but as you said, it's a hilltop. The question is, again, what we should call it, basically. If it's a uh-huh. temple or a hill fort or what it's what it was used for. I've seen discussion that we should not call uh-huh. it temples due to we're not sure if it's really a religious site or not. And as we understand, we, they might not have been an organized religion as uh, we uh-huh. will classify it, which would make the temple classification a bit weird in that sense. But at least it was a place to gather. As we noted, it was quite 
early in our history. So hunter-gatherer uh-huh. society. And as you mentioned, it do question or what uh-huh. comes first <laughs> in the Neolithic revolution. But at the same time, we have other examples of uh, quite advanced hunter-gatherer societies like the uh-huh. Yamon culture in Japan. They make some of the oldest pottery in the world as hunter-gatherers. Yeah, oldest pottery and they were they didn't move uh-huh. around really. They were a, had a sedimentary uh-huh. lifestyle, uh, which we usually can classify with farming society, agriculture society. Yeah, no, it, you know, it depends on the environment, right? Whether whether hunter-gatherers have to move around constantly to find new food sources, it depends on the environment. Mm. And there are many places in this world where you can get a relatively good calorie intake without having to travel a lot as a hunter-gatherer. Now, it's it's interesting because it's actually, Gobekli Tepe has been spun as revolutionary, as totally changing history, as totally rewriting our understanding of human development. And that has always been spin. It's a really cool archaeological site. It's a really important archaeological site. But it is not the first time we have seen hunter-gatherers building monuments by a long shot. Uh, my no. fa- my personal favorite is in the United States, in Louisiana, there's the site of Poverty Point, uh, which is a massive earthwork site that was all built by hunter-gatherers hmm. again. And, and let me say, too, I think we, we're not just speculating that these are hunter-gatherer sites. There are telltale material culture signs of agricultural production. Uh, that include things like, uh, you know, the actual plant materials themselves, uh, plant materials uh, that are being cultivated do survive in the archaeological record, particularly in uh, garbage pits sometimes. The tools that you need to process those plants, like, you know, almost every grain has to be ground. And that requires a mortar and pestle mm. or mono and metate of some kind. Like, there are literal material culture signals that go along with the switch to agricultural lifestyles. And those signals are not at Quebecly Tepe. They are not at Poverty Point. Like it's very clear that these are not sediment sites. They're sedentary sites where people are living and growing food. Uh, but instead, and this is where, like, yeah, is Gobekli Tepe religious? That's where we like, that's where it gets fun. Because it's like, well, what is religion? What is the definition of religion? How do we understand non-organized religions this far back in time? And it's a classically hard question to answer in archaeology. But Gobekli Tepe's, mm-hmm. in my book, it's a pretty obvious that it's a special place. Like usually, you know, yeah. we do have some subterranean dwellings where people live underground here and there around the world, but it's not normal. And so the fact that these are built underground is like, okay, this is a little bit different to begin with. The fact that they're circular and have sort of a, you know, is, is a, again, not unusual, but, uh, or not unknown, but not the, this regular, like every building circular. And the great thing about circles is the way that they focus people's attention. Like if you're standing around the edge, everybody's got to look to the middle. Or if you're standing in the middle, you've got everybody and everything all around you. And they're really great for focusing attention in that sort of way. Um, I think we should talk about the, the, the monoliths, though, because so you know, the, at the center of these subterranean uh, circular structures, there's many of them at Quebec Lake Tepe. And there are also many other sites um, uh, in the area in Turkey that have the same kind of subterranean structures. Quebec Lake Tepe is not unique. Yeah. Uh, the, everybody should go to Tepe Telegrams, which is a website run by the German Archaeological Institute uh, and the folks that actually work at Quebec Lake Tepe and excavated and worked there. Um, the upright monoliths in the center of uh, these subterranean structures have animals carved on them, uh, which they really focus on in this episode. They're like, "Oh my God, they're animals!" And, like, and, and there was there was a they tried to make an allusion to this being Noah's Ark. Like, uh, yeah, they uh, make a um, they do enjoy the doomsday and floods, and we will get to it later. But they, you know, the axis shift. Not uncommon in the ancient yeah. aliens uh, catastrophes, but uh, they make a parallel to Mount mm-hmm. Arat, where the Noah's Ark would be. And this is only 350 miles. That's 
for a European doesn't really tell me much, but apparently they think it's close enough. So, you know, Noah yeah. would have come to Gobli Tepe. And... Let's just say like most people can walk about 20 to 30 miles a day at best. And so that means <laughs> like, you know, it's all a month away. Like it's, that would, it's not close. I mean, yes, it's closer <laughs> than like I sitting over in North America, but yeah, it, they, they lean into the flood mythology going on here. And I think that they, they lean into, in particular, and this is classic ancient aliens, they lean into impossible. Like, how could people have precisely carved these monuments and raised them up? And it's like, <laughs> it's limestone. People have been cutting, carving, shaping limestone all around mm. the world for tens of thousands of years. It's a softer rock. Like, this is actually normal things for people to do and yet they they and this is where like the, the show leans so heavily on hyperbolic language and it just assumes that yeah. you won't question it and, it, and they're, like, they're like no one could raise a 15 ton monolith they say like you know what uh go look up wally wallington i love wally wallington uh who i uh, was this guy who mm -hmm. uh, was attempting to build a stonehenge in his backyard by himself and he's a retired, like 65-year-old contractor, you know, not a, a bodybuilder or anything like that. He's just a regular person. And mm. he's using leverage and gravity. And he was, there's a, a video of him out there on YouTube raising a 16-ton block by himself. Like by himself. Yeah, moving. Like, let alone if we get a couple <laughs> of people to help. 15-ton monoliths, they're like, nobody could raise a 15-ton monolith. Like, yes, a 65-year-old <laughs> dude can do it by himself. But they just like, lean into like, no one can do it. Impossible. Perfectly chiseled. Like, it's limestone. And this, is, this is totally one of those things where I love doing this. I love being on your show. I'm glad you're doing a show like this. But there's a huge part of me that's like, oh, my God, why do we have to respond to this? Like, every word that's coming out of their mouth is utterly ludicrous. Because, well, it's interesting <laughs> and unfortunately it catches people's attention. So, did you hear about the um, Turkey yes. politician who uh, jumping on the Gobli Tepe bandwagon? It was alien uh -huh. building this. So, it affects politicians, which in turn affects where the money goes. Will it go to real science or to. Uh, Again, the Bosnian pyramids, yeah. for example, who gets quite a lot of funding, at least previously have gotten money that could have gone to doing real science and instead looking for pyramids that doesn't exist in Bosnia. And this is exactly why like, I'm glad you're doing a show like this. It's why I jumped to be on a show like this. People eat it up. And, and yeah. that's, that's real and that's important. And I think it's something archaeologists need to acknowledge more and understand more because like, there is such an incredible story of human achievement here. And in Gobekli Tepe, uh, around the world, all of these sites, there's an incredible story of human achievements. And I, I think we as archaeologists can tell a better story than these, these flash in the pan <laughs> sort of conspiracy theories. But we've got to meet our audience where they're at. We, we can't sort of stay in the, I don't, I will give Hancock this, like, we cannot stay in the ivory tower. We cannot, you know, just write detailed theory written you know, articles for other academics and publish them in peer reviewed journals behind paywalls. Like, yeah, of course we're losing this one. Yeah, we need to get our storytelling more creative. We can still create uh, engaging stories and narratives, but that's dipped in, um, well, a more common language and, of course, mm -hmm. real knowledge. Because well, we are losing, and it's because peer-reviewed journals isn't as sexy as ancient aliens in the end. But uh, as you said, they don't really want to say what type of stone they mm -hmm. use at Gobliteki, since it is. Is it limestone? I thought it was sandstone, but I might be... I think it's limestone. It's possible it's sandstone. I, could, I didn't double-check that, but it is... Either two are you, as you said, quite mm -hmm. soft stone. So it would be a logical first step to carve for a civilization that's, you know, dipping their toes in monument building. Because otherwise they usually make a huge deal if it's a granite mm -hmm. or uh, any harder stone. How could they build this? Uh, should we move on to yes, Moscow please. maybe? Or do you, anything else you want to bring up on uh, 
Well, you know, actually, I do real quick. Uh, we we were talking about flood myths for a second there, and they did tie this to the Noah's Ark. And I I love the line in here where they're interviewing. They have Graham Hancock, and he says that archaeologists are aware that there are two thousand myths of a great flood around the world. And it's, <laughs> this is one of those classic ones where, I'm, for me, you know, he sees this as evidence of conspiracy that you know there's a there's a giant flood that destroyed this you know, ancient civilization that he's a promoter of. And I'm, every time I, I hear people pushing flood myths and saying like, this must have some grand significance, I, I keep thinking like, well, maybe the grand significance is floods are scary. And like, you know, anyone who lives anywhere near a river will at some point in you know 50 years of their life, see a really scary flood that washes everything away. It's kind of like, why are people, mm. you know, scared of the dark? Because there are, you know, things out in the dark sometimes. Why are people scared of floods? Because floods are terrible <laughs> and can really destroy an entire town in a blink of an eye. And so it's, you know, it's, it's mm. funny. They're, they see conspiracy. They see cover-up. They see giant interpretations. And what I see is, like, just totally normal daily life. It's like, yeah, floods are scary. Yeah, we actually covered this in the last episode a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um, as we mentioned there, that the, what they forget to mention, they're looking very specifically at places where that has flood mist and then forgets the ones yeah. who hasn't. Mm -hmm. So flood mist are usually quite common, as you said, where, where you yeah. have floods, for example. While here in Scandinavia, we don't have any myths mm -hmm. about floods because it wasn't common back up here. We had other things to worry about, like winters that were lasting yes. seven years and things like that. So again, it's a cultural thing. And as you said, we're afraid of things that scare us. For some, it's floods. For other, it's everlasting <laughs> winter uh, for obvious uh -huh. reason. But uh, let's move from here to Cusco in uh, Peru. From what I know, at least, is that Cusco is quite influenced by, or in some sense, influenced by Tiwanaku. Uh, Tiwanaku is a predecessor in the region. Uh, that's a, you know, about ooh, about four or five hundred mm. years earlier than the rise of the Inca Empire. Uh, this is, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, uh, at least in the United States, the Aztec, the Inca, and the Maya sort of loom very large in what, what our general people know about the ancient Americas. And both the Aztec and the Inca were really only around for a couple hundred years before uh, conquest began. And we see colonization and all of its horrible mm -hmm. effects. Um, yeah, they, they, they focus on Sacsayhuaman, which is a, an Inca fortress. Uh, that has one of the most impressive examples of Inca-style masonry. Uh, and you, you see this yeah. you know, uh, at many Inca sites, not just Sacsayhuaman, you see it all over. It was a standard building technique uh, where they build large walls with multi-sided stones. They're not, they don't have like four sides. They're not like a block. They are five, six, seven, eight different sides or planes on them. They make really cool geometric patterns. Uh, and they're gorgeous and they're impressive and they're mortarless, which is what a lot of these uh, the ancient alien folks focus on is that you, know, you can't slide a piece of paper between them and they're these perfect joins between <laughs> these super large rocks. Um, they didn't tell you some. It's interesting. Some of the some folks who are interested in ancient civilization, the, the lost, mysterious uh, pseudo uh, ancient civilizations, really love the nubs that are on these rocks. They didn't show us any of the nubs uh, in this episode. Hmm. What we we know is that they used to put leave little rock nubs on the sides of these blocks, uh, and so that they could raise them and lower them with levers as they were working on that fit to get that perfect fit. Uh, and this. I love Inca masonry. If, if anyone, if you have not seen Inca masonry before, like it is some of the most impressive human architecture that has ever been created. Like there's a reason they focus on it. There's a reason people are drawn to it. But the cool thing is it's very human. Like they, they spend so much time in this episode talking about um, what they might be mold made. Like these rocks were like poured into molds and, and, and placed somehow. Uh, they bring up this uh, classic legend uh, from South America that birds could peck through solid stone using some sort of chemical, and so they might be shaped like that in some some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, but the re reality is, is that there have been multiple experimental studies done over the last fifty years, uh, recreating some of these forms. Like all you need is another rock, 
and you pound one rock flat with another <laughs> rock and then you place another rock on top of it mm. and you stack them. Like it's, this is again, one of those things where it's like, it's actually so simple. Uh, they, 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 you know, they're, they're suggesting grand explanations. It could be aliens. They must be mold made. Uh, there's a bird that can peck through solid stone. When we've literally recreated these walls <laughs> just by banging rocks together. Like it's, it's absolutely incredible how they take the simplest thing and which is very impressive and I love, and I don't want to undersell underscore that, but it is the simplest manufacturing technique you can imagine spun up into an alien conspiracy. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. But especially around, as you mentioned, the AC, the, that's a claim I've encountered a lot before. And here I must say that even some in the fields, have maybe done us a disservice. I know that Edwin Barnhart, mm-hmm. um, Mesoamerican professor who do a lot of public speaking, I think he has done some for the great courses, mm-hmm. a few courses on Inca and Mayan prehistory, but he brings up the, uh, that he used acid to shape stones in his lectures. Oh, what? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I just came to think about it because I I remembered that I heard that before, but in a completely different setting. So I went back and found all the great courses mm-hmm. that I had stored away. And yeah, he do bring up on his course on the Inca mm-hmm. culture that they we don't know how they formed this, but they used probably acid was <laughs> his theory. Yeah. Oh, it is, yeah. No, I, I've, I've got a video I can send you of a guy making one of these walls. Like it's just banging rocks together, <laughs> uh, and and it's incredible the dedication, the time, and you know I think to me this is sort of the the, the grandness of it. Like if you think Gobekli Tepe, if you think Sacsay Wilan is so amazing that it has to be aliens, mm. like just think how much more amazing is that people did this. Like, and that we have the evidence for it. Yeah, it's, again, they don't really make a good case why the aliens would have built this. They just say, oh, this is too difficult for humans to do. Which... Yeah, yeah there's, there's sort of a standard, <laughs> well, it's too big, it's too hard, it must be aliens. Uh, and and then I like <laughs> how they bring up the whole, oh, but you need, they have some engineer on Brandenburg. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Yes. And he talks about how many people you would have needed to do all of this. And then they forget the whole Inca structure in general with workforces ah. and that you poured in. And literally the Inca <laughs> empire was a practice forced labor. Right? Like as they expanded and took over new regions, they would say, all right, you're working for us now and send people to build stuff. It, it's still one of my, I mean, it's not the episode we watched, but it's one of my <laughs> classic favorites. I, I often uh, have my students watch an episode and we talk about it and way back and you covered season one, episode one, they're interviewing a sculptor who's, you know, goes on and on, like, nobody could have carved these blocks of Tiwanaku. They, and at the very end of his interview, he's like, well, they could have, it just would have taken a lot of time. Like, yeah! Yeah, that's Christopher Dunn. We actually met him again in was this. Was he back in this one? The same guy? Yeah, um, I'm getting this my, one, Christopher uh, Dunn. Uh, yeah. The worst stonecutter slash engineer. <laughs> <laughs> he's... He claims that he's a stone cutter, but he never can figure out how to yeah. cut stone except, well, you just need a yeah. lot of time. Fine. Usually. Lo and behold. <laughs> and we also meet George Delgado mm-hmm. that's speaking about his space brothers that I haven't been able to figure out where it comes from. And he pops up in this show quite a lot with different job oh, titles. Oh, does he? Interesting. So in one episode, he's a mountain mm-hmm. climber. Another, he's an mm-hmm. author. Another, he's an explorer. In this one, he's a yes, shaman. Yes, he was their, their indigenous shaman for this episode, sort of giving that voice of authenticity. Yeah, but uh, the Space Brother thing, they talk a lot about it, but I've never figured out where it actually comes from. If it's something Delgado has made up himself, or is it part of Mayan culture, Inca culture? Because they, they put them all across the Meso and South America, but yeah, this, this is at, at, never given a source yeah, for it. At best, this is sort of like an extreme stretch. I mean, he's talking in this one, uh, in this episode, he talked about kind of goes from that bird that might be able to peck through stone to suggest that maybe it's yeah. a, 
human, like a humanoid with a bird head to like, oh, it's an alien. Sacsayhuaman means the head of the falcon, falcon's head. But maybe it was some falcons or maybe some bird people who could connect with the place. Like he jumped, like you, you literally watch him jumping from one to the next in this episode as he's trying to push through. And it's, this is, this is the thing, and they, they do this a lot with religious texts around the world uh, in the show and Von Donnegan's books and whatnot. Like if you start with the assumption that religious texts are about aliens, and then you read religious texts that are in translation and you cherry pick out little tiny pieces of those texts, like, sure, you can say there are sky people who are brothers. Like, yes, because like, mm. tra like translating religion is incredibly complex and incredibly hard because you're always speaking metaphorically. You're always in an illusion territory. Uh, and then you put that into another language. And of course, it's going to sound strange and funny. And they, they take advantage of that. And they cherry pick it to all high heaven throughout these uh, shows. Oh, sorry. I don't want to interrupt you for too long. But if you don't know, I have released a new show called Archaeologists and UFOs. And in this show, we explore single artifacts, places or ideas discussed in well, this show and of course on Ancient Aliens. And this show is aiming for a little bit shorter format. It we, an episode will be around 10 to 15 minutes. Perfect for your friends who might not want to listen to a two-hour show on Ancient Aliens. The show will be in audio and in text format if you would rather read it, but why would you? <laughs> to this you will also find bibliography and sources. So when you're done with this episode, head on over to Archaeologist and UFO and have a listen. Our first episode is on the Sakara bird that we talked a little bit way back in episode one. I have since found some more information that I, I think you will find quite interesting. Well, that's all. Let's get back to the discussion with Dr. Anderson. So how about we make a jump and skip to uh, France yes. or uh, Breton in France. And we will talk about the Karnak stones which is Menhirs, as it's mm -hmm. called. So it's old French for standing stone, basically. So it's very well mm -hmm. described, which are the Menhirs are all across the globe, technically. Mm -hmm. But uh, especially in this area in Breton, France, you have quite a lot of mm -hmm. them. And especially the Karnak stones is a long stretch of stones arranged from biggest to smallest on the field and I actually was there last uh, November for my birthday Excellent. and looked on the different <laughs> different stone we were driving all across Europe so we stopped there to look in but it's a quite impressive mm -hmm. field but they make a lot of claims in this just a few episode uh, just a few we have childress for example uh, talking about there's some magnetic uh -huh. field that makes technology not work properly while he's on camera <laughs> yeah. which i found quite amusing <laughs> <laughs> but the um, cell phone and compasses works just uh -huh. fine today you're not allowed to walk across the stones as he did uh -huh. uh, unfortunately due to they're afraid of um, people tipping them over making damage to the area so one of those sites that unfortunately gets closed down to save it they claim that these are quarried mm -hmm. stones which i found quite amusing because even in the show you can you clearly see that they are not carved they yeah. are not shaped they are just found tipped up and voila you have a man here they might have brought them for a little time, but again, it's not a it's not a tricky monument mm -hmm. to build, yep. so to say. They're they're rocks. They're big rocks. They're yeah, they're <laughs> yeah, <laughs> big standing rocks. And as I said, it's a quite easy monument to mm -hmm. build. So I don't see how it would be strange, really, for people to just oh, we tip it over, and here we have. A monument to whatever we want it to be. We have a few in uh -huh. Sweden. And if we look 
on the size in general, you have a lot of dolmens, you know, the little uh, stone uh, houses. So you have bigger stones and you put a few uh-huh. over steps yes. over and you have a grave inside. And uh, they don't really spend much time of those. They don't mention the biggest stone. That's actually quite impressive. Men uh-huh. here of Ergra, so is this giant men here, th- some 300 uh-huh. tons. They forget to mention oh. just, <laughs> I think it's 15 minutes drive from Karnak even. So, <laughs> why go? It's, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure why they bring didn't bring that up because that would my my understanding would have this is hearsay <laughs> from uh from another uh someone who has actually worked on the show they relied a lot on stock footage uh and so uh-huh. they, they didn't always have the money or the budget to go places and so this is i'm totally conjecturing hmm. here but you know it might just be like well they have the stock footage of that so let's talk about this and if they don't have stock footage then they can't use it actually that makes a lot of sense thinking back mm-hmm. of it. It's like it's what, it was a cheap show to put together, and it still is, as I understand. Yeah, but they actually have children walking yeah. along the. Yeah, so they, do, they definitely stone. go so to some. They had a team there, <laughs> and um, from talking about this world grid theory yeah. that they bring up again, and that Karnak would have been part of somehow, we uh, have another of these extraordinary claims that. It's one of three things that you can see from space. I loved that. We're like, uh, you know, too close himself. The guy with the hair is like, yes, it, Karnak is one of three things you can see from space. Karnak, Nazca lines, and the Great Wall of China. And that is one of only three things that you can see from outer space. It's Nazca, Great Wall in China, and Karnak. Were they meant to be seen by people in the sky? And who could have been flying at that time other than extraterrestrials? Like none of, yeah. well, it, I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean see from space, but the literally none of that is true. Like if you look at the, the astronauts in the International Space Station, they cannot see the Great Wall of China, like without a telescope. Or like, you nope. know, like it depends on what you mean by see from space. But literally, the people orbiting the planet now, looking out the window, cannot see the Great Wall of China, let alone Nazca or Karnak. Like, they just make stuff up. <laughs> yeah, and if you think about it, it wouldn't make sense. The Karnak stones, they are not yeah. wider than maybe two oh, people yeah, hugging. Yeah, that was amazing. And... <laughs> like, Karnak, like, Great Wall of China, I get why people say this, but yeah, Karnak, they are rocks like no you can't see that <laughs> yeah i even had to pause the show and then go to google <laughs> earth and just can i find these monuments by uh, uh, just scrolling in and no mm-hmm. i could not <laughs> so, but the, the world grid uh, I, I loved here too because you often see and this is one of the things that drives my interest scholarly in these topics is there's so much overlap in as soon as you slide into the paranormal world or into pseudoscience or pseudoarchaeology, you regularly bump into other claims. And this, this world grid mm. ley line concept that they're laying out here, they're touching into a lot of new age spiritual ideas about earth energy and whatnot that yeah, they're, they're mm. really borrowing from other belief systems here, but somehow implying that it was the aliens who knew this rather than, you know, the humans. Yeah. And then, uh... The world grid system, I think they have it as some sort of that it should be able to open different portals and things like that or to recharge spaceships or whatever they have uh, made up in the past. It's such a classic cherry picking too, where it's like, look, all of these sites are on a line or in this grid pattern. It's like, yes, if you zoom all the way out into a map of the globe, Uh, it's and then use a symbol that's about the size of a country to represent each of these different archaeological sites uh it's easy to make it look like some of them and then forget all the ones that you're not including on that that map like it's the easiest way to make that like oh that's a that's a grid pattern all those archaeological sites are in a grid pattern like yes that is total like manipulation of imagery right there yeah (laughs) and on the term of uh, manipulating imaging, they then start to talk about uh, 
one other pet theory of them, Pythagorean cult mm-hmm. or science. Oh, yes. So they bring up the triangle and how Karnak were supposed to be in a advanced Pythagorean mm-hmm. type of triangle. And they show a picture on the screen with the Karnak with the stones are on one mm-hmm. line. You don't have really anything beside it. And uh, somehow they form a triangle of this one line. On uh, Even on the shows, you have one dot, one dot, and then they just draw a triangle mm-hmm. out of nothing. <laughs> and uh, Foucault's say how could they have knowledge of uh, triangular math because reasons well, <laughs> this was definitely I mean, one of the inherent problems with this show is there is a structural racism that lies underneath it where they constantly hold up mm. like how could these humans have figured this out i mean the greeks figured it out and of course Tsoukalos is uh, greek and he's like well, i mean the greeks figured this out that's totally normal they could have done that but these other people could not have possibly figured that out on their own like they, they don't go to Greece mm. and and ask how Pythagoras figured out. Like Pythagoras must have had alien help. No, Pythagoras is smart. If he's Greek, he would have figured it out. But the people who built Karna. No, he might have had. They actually brought that up in uh, oh, the earlier they? episode. Oh, <laughs> how aliens influenced um, Pythagoras, uh, Da Vinci, I guess the Vinci episode. Uh, yeah. Van Brown, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> it's. So, you know, they select some yeah. people and then they tell them all the secrets except, you know, things like germ theory. And, yes. Um... Well, we get, I mean, we're <laughs> skipping to the end here and I don't want to skip past Karahung, uh, but uh, uh, they, they give, uh, you know, um, Ed Leedskin, Leedskalen, excuse me, uh, special alien contact. This man who built uh, yeah. Castle gets special alien contacts. Let's talk about Karahang, yes. I think. So uh, it's a site in mm-hmm. Armenia that for me was quite unknown previous to this, but it's some 7,500 years old, some 203, uh, 203 uh, slabs of basalt. And as far as I understood the science from what I could find, at least in my research, is that while some in the past has wanted to put this as a astrological mm-hmm. site, some doesn't really believe it any longer. Yeah, I, I love this. I, I, this is again, this is a site that's a little off my map. I don't know much about it, but there, I love this line of like, oh, it aligns with the constellation if we decide that there was a pole shift, <laughs> uh, a rapid pole shift of some kind or another. It's like, oh, yeah, so. <laughs> The theory in the show is that this is some sort of warning about pole mm-hmm. shift that scientists, well, it, they do happen, but they are very, very slow yeah. and takes a lot of time, but not according to ancient aliens, because then their theories wouldn't line up <laughs> and work. So you have a rapid pole shift, and this is the warning for it somehow. And um, there was a. <laughs> Well, there was a great line at the beginning. I think it was uh, Hancock who said this, but it, someone you know, basically said mainstream archaeologists don't know who built this site. And it's, it's one of those lines that to me was such this like, classic <laughs> throwaway where it's like, yeah, we don't know their names. <laughs> we, and, you know, and, and we don't necessarily know the language they spoke. There's a lot that we don't know about people who built archaeological sites all around the world. So it's a true line that is sort of, meaningless to actual archaeology and yet if you put it in the context of a Hmm. show like this it sounds mysterious all of a sudden like mainstream archaeologists don't know who built this like yeah no we don't like that we're never going to know who built that like no matter how much work we do we're never we don't know who built most of the monuments in the ancient world like they're we don't know at least in terms of their names like teotihuacan teotihuacan Hmm. is one of my favorite archaeological sites in central mexico huge city probably home to a hundred thousand people we don't know what language they spoke. We probably never will know what language they spoke or what ethnic terms they knew themselves as. And so you can say we don't know who built Teotihuacan because we don't know their names. We don't know their ethnicity. We don't know their identity. But we've done a ton of research there. We know a lot about them. We know a lot about the site. But it's, mm-hmm. it's like it's such a throwaway line. We don't know who built this. Like, yeah, no, we built this. Like that's that's normal, not a conspiracy. Yeah, and I think that's something that the um, 
pseudo-scientists have as their advantage that science isn't exact. Mm -hmm. Even if we basically know a lot about them, we never say, oh, for sure it was this and this and Mm -hmm. this, because it might change as we uncover new information. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we want to be able to adapt, which again, it's a language thing that maybe we scientists need to handle a bit better and educate on how scientific language work and what we really mean when we say we don't know who built it, for example, with Tivanako, but we don't know what to call Mm -hmm. them or what they call themselves or, yeah. Yeah, And it's, it's so important for us to, yeah, to be clear and to, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm, I understand scientific academic approaches that we don't know the full answer and we never will know the full answer, but we need to emphasize what we do actually know. And that just because we, something new Mm -hmm. might come along that will alter understanding that that doesn't throw out what we previously learned, that there is still good information. No, here they also bring up some petroglyphs from the area and Martel, especially focusing on a few reliefs that's, Mm -hmm. They don't say where mm-hmm. they are found in the context. Yeah. I didn't manage to track them down good. All I managed to get from the pictures were reference to ancient aliens, usually not a great sign, but uh, there mm-hmm. might be from somewhere in that general area. But uh, Sukalos is holding up a picture of a stone slab with two people mm-hmm. that holding a disc. And yes. What does he say? Yeah, that they are having these... The uh, disc is floating in <laughs> space. Like, or, <laughs> yeah, the like disc is floating in space. And if them. you look at the... So that's, yeah. <laughs> and if you look at their faces, they look like gray aliens. And sure, we can give it to him. They they kind of look like gray aliens. Yeah. There was definitely yeah. one of the pictures, but not the one he was holding <laughs> up, which it, it kind of like... The big, one he was holding up just looked like had sort of big heads. There was another picture that, that to me was like, ah, oh, yeah, that totally looks like gray alien. But like to me, the funny thing of all of this is how retconned it is, in that there's literally no description of gray aliens until 1960, uh, with the Betty and Barney Hill mm. abduction case. Like that's the first time anyone ever describes a gray alien. You know, previous alien encounters that people alleged uh are described differently with different types of aliens. And so it's so there's so much of this of what we expect alien life to look like. This is also like, let me just say, like, I mm. love it if alien life is real. I am super interested in that idea. I think if we ever actually meet alien life, we're going to have a hard time recognizing it. Not for, for scientific reasons, yes, but almost more for pop culture reasons. Because we have been so, we've had the gray alien image so like jammed down our throat that when the aliens show up and they don't look like that, we're going to be confused. <laughs> <laughs> Or isn't reptilians. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's an interesting site currently. And it would be interesting to know more about it. I think Wilcock is trying to make some current connection to the Orion correlation, Mm -hmm. but he switched it out to uh, the Cygnus, the swan. Mm -hmm. And uh, claiming that, oh, the the swan was very important to the Greek culture and the Chinese and I don't know. Uh, I I have to throw in here too, this is always the classic, like every culture makes up its own constellations. Like this is such a classic of uh, pseudo-archaeology. They're like, (laughs) look, let's use this Greek constellation and apply it to a totally different culture. Like, no, they they drew Mm. different pictures in the stars. Yeah, it's a bit amazing, but uh, they're trying to... Find pattern and then they match it as they yes. see fit in general. How about we get to the craziest part? I usually have something that's really out of top in mm-hmm. the end to keep you uh, on top through the episode. <laughs> so we are going to talk a little bit about Coral Castle, mm-hmm. who was built by this Latvian loner who had the knowledge that no one else had what they call Led Skalin. Uh-huh, Skalin, yes. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, 
as you said, it's quite amazing. So the claim is that he built this whole stone park mm -hmm. with, uh, you have a lot of stones and monuments and quite large stones by himself. And this is some sort of wonder and we don't know how he made it, uh -huh. say in the show. And then they show the tripod with the <laughs> pulley system on it. And I think you... <laughs> yeah, it, it, there, there's so much. We don't know how he made it. And here's a picture of the, the tools he used to make it. Oh, my. <laughs> and they zoom... No, and it's, it's yeah, such a, in on a like, little... Coral Castle is, as far as I'm concerned, a classic American sort of thing where... It, you know, it's built by an immigrant, which is so much you know, the, um, of our country that leans into this, but it's a tourist trap. <laughs> it is entirely yeah. like, come to this really <laughs> weird, random, giant ball of yarn and, and pay me $5 to see it. Like, Coral Castle is the classic American <laughs> tourist trap where he built the weirdest thing he could so people would come and see it. And sure enough, 100 years later, people are still paying tickets to go to Coral Castle and see it. And so, yeah, you know, they 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 reference some of the interviews with him, like always, like he where he was being sort of cagey about how he built it. He wouldn't tell people exactly how he built it. Like, yeah, because he hopes he will buy a ticket and come to his tourist trap. <laughs> like, if he tells you that it was like, yeah, like I stacked a block on top of a block with a tripod, like you don't come to the tourist trap. Like, it's it's like entirely breaking the rules uh, if you do this, and yet. No, they they turn this like they turn a tourist trap into well, he must have had secret alien contacts. Yeah, but Ed did grow to something of a big name somehow with his pamphlets yeah. that he sold in local newspaper. Oh, yes. So if you're looking up in different forums on, uh, you know, magnetism and energy, he comes up as this unknown genius. Mm -hmm. While uh, <laughs> he probably wasn't, and I love also how they say that he could move these big stones all by himself and at one point they show some guy spinning yeah. a stone at the yeah, one of the stones is museum set at and... the, the park today that you can as a visitor can go and spin it uh and so yeah yeah but that's not something they should show if it's impossible for people to move stones by themselves no. yeah I say, and also that they managed to squeeze in uh, Professor Sarah Seeger mm -hmm. in here, uh, cutting her a bit out of context. So they having her say something like, levitation is the only way that I know to hold up very heavy objects. Yes, we have the whole maglev train like, <laughs> discussion in here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, they sh they're showing us photos of the tripod he used. But let's have a discussion about magnetic levitation because that's more fun. Yeah, so their thing is that he used the magnetism somehow from Earth uh, with his little black yes. box. That, There's some black you know, box uh, on top put of the, the gravity <laughs> out of. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the only reason why they show the tripod. Mm -hmm. But yeah. just for the black box that I'm not sure what it did, but I, I guess it was some where he had his pulley or mm -hmm. something, I guess. But yeah. To me, the best part of this section, well, I mean, I think that this whole section of the show is great because it's like you're talking about a dude in Florida in 1923, like, and and that's part of your alien conspiracy, which is great. Um, but the, towards the end of it, Giorgio Tsoukalos comes on, and they, they he says, "Am I saying or am I suggesting he did it with aliens?" No, and I'm just like, dude, like your the name of your show is Ancient Alien. You are suggesting that he did it with alien help. But then, but then he follows it up again where he's like, am I excluding it as a possibility? No, I'm just asking questions. The fact that one guy created these massive structures, it is absolutely fascinating. Am I suggesting that he did this with extraterrestrial technology? No, because I don't know. Am I excluding that possibility no and it's the i'm just asking questions is the most dishonest way you can present information uh because mm. they're 100 percent not taking accountability for what they're claiming and what they're setting up they're clearly implying that he had alien help but so close is like i didn't say that did you say that and it's 
it goes straight back to Chariots of the Gods. I mean, this the show was originally founded uh, based on the ideas of Eric von Donneken uh, and his book, Chariots mm. of the Gods, uh, which was published with a question mark at the end of that title. Or he's like, I'm just asking questions. All I'm doing is just saying, what if? And it's, it is really this sad sleight of hand uh, that allows them to yeah. say whatever they want, but have this little back door at the back saying like, ah, bye-bye, we didn't really mean that seriously. Have a good day. <laughs> and it's like, you can't take them to court, basically. Like, you could never, uh, you know, like, accuse them of libel or anything like that because they have their questions as a back door. And it's, it's it's the most infuriating part of this because it's again if that is a good public engagement strategy because the people watching the show are like yeah i just want to think about this and that's true and it's the problem where the academy comes off all the time as like talking down to people and saying like no it has to be this and we need to find that middle road where we can say like look there's you know like that there is room for discussion there's so many cool things humans have done so many things but we actually know there are certain things they didn't do. Yeah, there's a bunch of great mysteries that's within the realm of possibility that actually would be quite interesting to ask questions about instead of the hyperbolic oh, uh, ancient aliens yes. <laughs> over the top. Oh, my. And especially when they put in misinformation, racism, and, and other quite dangerous ideas. We didn't really cover it, but um, during the Cusco mm-hmm. part, they do bring up the white god yes. thing. Yeah, yeah, they brought up Miracocha and Tuklos coming back saying that you know, he's pale-skinned and tall. And it's like, this is not... And they're Basically, they're saying that the Inca had a legend about a white god who taught them how to build things. Hmm. That that that's that's from the colonial era, that, and that is heavily influenced by the colonists coming in and rewriting the ancient world. Like the, that, it, and yeah. they're leaning into literal colonial white supremacy there. Yeah, the, we. It was good to get it in because, as I said, we uh, both managed to yeah, miss no, it. No, I have it in my notes, and so I'm so thank you for bringing that back up because that was one of the more yeah, like, me too, and I just about. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they do have this dangerous idea embedded in them and other other dangerous organizations do latch on to it and use it as evidence for their oh, theories. The Mormons, for example, tend to like the ancient aliens, maybe not the idea themselves, but you know, the white god complacence, they believe that white people came to the Americas. Mm-hmm. And then turn brown because they were evil and all yes. of that. Yeah. Well, it's being picked up in my own country. Well, and, and uh, it's definitely being picked up by the alt right movement at this point. Uh, yeah. Steph Hamholfer is the one to talk to about this. There's a Canadian archaeologist who's looking at sort of the pseudo archaeology and the alt right movements in North America right now. But they're literally, uh, this has become a thing where. Uh, white supremacists in the uh, in North America and the United States have started to make the claim like, oh, look, white people were in North America first. Therefore, it's our continent and we can you know, do whatever the heck we want. Like this is this stuff mm. gets picked up by fringe political movements even to this day in a very real way, in a very harmful way. Yeah, and that's why it's important to acknowledge what they are saying and, well, uh, stop them from just asking yes. questions and sneaking way back out that way. All right. So if the audience would want to hear more from you or read more from you, where should they go? Yes, well, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter at DSA Archaeology. Uh, I've got a, if you don't like Twitter, I've got a Facebook, uh, a, you know, sort of not a personal, but a professional Facebook page under DSA Archaeology and Instagram as well. Uh, and I am constantly uh, talking there and trying to reach out and engage with people. So come find me there. All right. And have you been in any uh, nice new documentaries? Uh, yeah, actually, the uh, science friction documentary just came out by um, a Skeptoid Media. Uh, and Skeptoid, the science friction documentary was actually, um, uh, I was there talking about ancient aliens as well. Uh, but the, the general focus of that documentary is how science and scientists are often misrepresented in documentary filmmaking, uh, where they'll be cut and, and chopped uh, so they make it sound like, in fact, there's a great interview. Everybody should go and watch that film just to hear Ken Fader speak. 
uh, Ken Bader is an archaeologist who's done a, more than anyone to combat pseudo-archaeology uh, and has a fabulous book, Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, that everybody should go and pick up. Uh, but he's he's in uh, science fiction talking about how you know, they really wanted him in an Atlantis documentary. And uh, he uh, it's like, I don't, but Atlantis isn't real. And they're like, that's okay. We'll just cut it so it sounds <laughs> like you, you think it's a possibility. And which is I, totally what caught my eye in watching this episode that we watched for today, where Graham Hancock and Robert Scotch, or Shock, uh, excuse me, Graham Hancock and Robert Shock, yeah. they don't believe in ancient aliens. And yet they're, they are cut no. in this film or in this episode <laughs> to make it sound like they are ancient alien folks. This is an incredibly common practice in documentary making to just like say, you know, we've already got our story picked out. We just need some talking heads. We'll give them whatever titles, like you said, whatever titles we need them to have in this particular <laughs> episode. And we'll just clip them together so it tells the story we already decided on. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Uh... It's a good documentary. You should go and see it, if not only for David. Yeah, I'm just at the beginning. If you just want me, you can watch like five minutes and done. But the whole thing, you should watch to the end. You got to get Fader. Yeah, of course you should get Fader. But um, I will let you go. then. Thank you so much for having me. This is great fun. A huge thank you, David. And if you want to hear more from Dr. Anderson, you should check out his Twitter account at DSA Archaeology, where you can find more of him. And of course, you can find his articles in Forbes linked in the show notes. David will also be featured in a new book called Comics and Archaeology, which will be released somewhere in July or August. When the date is set, I will update the show notes and of course, make a little little note on it on the social medias. But in this book, David will have a chapter where he discusses pseudo-archaeology in video games. And I'm, for one, is really excited to read this, and I, I hope you are too. Link to the project will be found in the show notes. Remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such on iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the Trench. I would also recommend you to visit diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about me and the podcast. You will also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you want to write one of those emails in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. On our website, you will also find the sources, resources that we use to create this podcast. You will also find usually further reading suggestions. And if you want to learn more about the subjects that we bring up, there you can also now find our sister show, Archaeologist and UFO. Remember to have a listen when you're done with this episode. The intro music was created by Alexander Nakareda, and we our fantastic outro is created by the band called Tralskruv with their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists will be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep showing that science. Men jag skyddar mig för jag har folie Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 